Welcome to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to The Female Red Zone. This is Mary Beth Kosmaski. Today, I'm interviewing Deborah Rue, CEO of Rue Global Communications. She is the founder and the CEO. She is the co-founder of AXSC. It's a chat. Um, she can talk about this, a Twitter chat about accessibility and disability inclusion. She has done so many amazing things in her career. She is also a mother to a daughter with Down syndrome, and she can talk about the things that she's been trying to do uh, on this inclusion idea and everything around just treating people as equals. So let me welcome to the show, Deborah Rue. Thank you so much, Mary Beth. Well, I really like the content that you have on your show. Very empowering. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your communications firm. I know you do a lot in social media, but talk to me about your communications firm and, and how it got started. Well, I started my my communications firm about, uh, um, we're three years old, March 1st. And I had had a technology company. I had founded a technology company um, in 2001. And so the technology company, uh, well, and then even going back a little bit before that, I was in the banking industry and I was in the executive levels in banking and I was in technology and training. And as I looked at um, my daughter as she hit middle school and my husband and I realized that she just was not going to have the same options as other people um, that didn't have disabilities, um, we started waking up to the um, sort of the employment issues and the inclusion issues. And so I created a company um, in 2001 and ran it until 2011, and it was called Tech Access. And um, I built the company to a multi-million dollar business. Over 80% of my team were technologists with disabilities. I had wonderful successes, and boy, I had some glorious, fiery failures along the way as well. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> really big failures, but that's okay. So um, in 2011, I merged the company with another firm that in my space, um, and I will tell you, I did it because the banks, the the bank that I was banking with in Virginia, I, I was a global company, but I was based out of Virginia, and the bank I was with in Virginia failed, and the regulators stepped in, and they actually, um, they didn't officially call it calling my note. But overnight, I had a $200,000 bank note, um, note due, so it felt like calling my note. So I, at the time, that was when many, many Americans had been laid off. There was about 7 million Americans that had been laid off at the time. And quite frankly, the employees, even though they were very, very talented technologists, throwing them out into the marketplace at that time was going to be very, very difficult for the family. So I merged with another company, saved all my employees' positions. A lot of people lost money, um, including my family. And I stayed with that firm for about 18 months as their chief marketing officer. And then I thought, once an entrepreneur, <laughs> I just mm -hmm. it's in my blood, in my blood. So I created Rue Global Communications back um, March 1st, 2013. And um, I, I wanted to really help major corporations, countries, uh, United Nations agencies, understand 
um, how to tell an empowering story about including people with disabilities, as opposed to always telling it from a charity perspective. So sorry for the long answer. It sort of was, uh, I guess, like anything else, a walk to get to real global communications. <laughs> well, thank you for the overview because it's very helpful. And um, what an interesting background you've had for sure. You know, you talk about inclusion of people with disabilities, and it's not a charity. It is it, it is inclusion, and that's way different. So, talk a little bit about that and and what you've what you've worked on and what you've tried to do as it relates to that. Well, one thing that I saw, and, and my and my husband and I both saw this, whenever. Our daughter, normally when a child is born with Down syndrome, we as a society usually find out that the child has Down syndrome before they're born or certainly right when they're born. So um, we did not find out that our daughter had Down syndrome until she was four months old. And when the doctor started suspecting something was wrong um, and they did the test and they called my husband and I in and told us. and. It was it, it was very confusing because there was nothing wrong with our daughter. I don't know what they were talking about, but it, it just the whole way it was presented. And I don't blame the doctors. It's just sort of part of our society. But it was such a sad, tragic thing. And you know, my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, "Well, our daughter's life isn't a tragedy. I mean, she's not broken." She she has a lot to add the value, a lot of value to add to society as well. So as I've walked this journey and trying to you know uh, figure out how can I best add uh, value to society, I've seen more and more and more um, examples of this. And you mentioned the chat that I uh, co-founded with a gentleman from Ireland and another gentleman from England, and it's called um, AXS Chat but it's an abbreviation for access chat. And so we started this chat, um, not this past November, but the November before that. Um, and we just wanted to talk about, once again, inclusion and uh, accessibility and what do we need to do as society to truly um, engage and include people with disabilities. And we were really surprised at the people that we've been able to include in these conversations and the conversations um, that we're seeing unfold. Because, for example, today we, we interviewed an, a young actress, um, and she was born without um, her arm, I believe, at the elbow. And so it was funny listening to her today because she was saying she's a really amazing talent. And she was saying, um, well, you know, this is where I was born. So when people look at me and say, oh, how awful you don't have your arm. Well, it's just how she was born. So she doesn't know any other way. And, and my daughter's a perfect example. She was born with Down syndrome. She has an extra chromosome, but it's just who she is. Now, 80% of disabilities are acquired after we're born. So I think in some ways it's more difficult as we acquire disabilities, whether we acquire them quickly through a car accident or um, brain embolism or a heart attack or whatever, or if we, we maybe we have lupus or MS or diabetes and we acquire them over time. It still changes who you are um, and you have to, I think that we have to do a lot of soul searching to figure out Okay, you know, you you know, now what do I do with my life? And 
so the, I am trying to really help society understand that just because a person has a disability does not mean they can't add value to you know, the workforce, to society as a whole, to a very powerful conversation. And also that many people with disabilities um, over our history have added great, great value to society. Uh, I recently saw Stephen Hawkins um, with, uh, had made a comment that in the future we will, our fuel will come from black holes. And I think, wow, that's so incredible. And what a, if Stephen wasn't around, that would be a real loss to society. And then you look at some of the other really amazing people that have contributed to society um, and they had a disability. And sometimes their contributions are probably greater because they have the disabilities. And I'll give you an example. People with autism. There's, you know, sometimes we assume that if a person has an autism, once again, it's a tragedy. Well, what if instead of looking at it like that, we would say, well, when a person has autism, they use their brain differently than, say, somebody that doesn't have autism. And there's great value to using different parts of our brain because that, that allows us to solve problems in a different way. So I'm really trying to help you know, corporations and governments and, and everybody really think about uh, the labels that we're attaching to people and deciding that they can or cannot, you know, add value. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And, and it's such good work that you're doing because, um, of course, people, you know, are going to contribute to society. And if we don't allow them to do that or put them in a place that doesn't allow them to do that, then, you know, that that's not, it's not right. And and so I, I love the work that you're doing with this, which is why I was really interested to interview you on, you know, I, I talk a lot about inclusion with women and, and you know, right. in the workforce and such, but um, it's, it's the same, it's the same sort of issue. It's, it's, it's at a different level. It's at a higher level um, with, with disabilities because we look at somebody and they're different, whether they're a woman or whether they have a disability and we can see the disability and, and then we treat them perhaps differently. And, and inclusion is one of the most powerful things. There's, there's companies that are popping up on, you know, all over to do inclusion training because they figured out we can't have diversity in the workforce if we don't figure out the inclusion issue. We're never going to figure out the diversity issue. So it's it's, right, a, long, it's right. a long road. Yeah, and and it it feels like it, it it's just such a big problem that we don't know how to solve it. And here in the United States, um, and not just in the United States, but just speaking from the United States, we now have there, there's a lot of laws and legislation and goals. There's a goal. Um, for any corporation in the United States that's a federal contractor. And, so, and that includes any university, any state, anybody, any entity, I should say, that takes more than $10,000 a year from the federal government falls under this umbrella. And it says 7% of your workforce will be people with disabilities. But well, but we're not allowed to ask if a person has a disability. So if it's a visible disability, okay, we can check the box or we can complete the information. But it, it's a lot of disabilities aren't necessarily visible. And so it's these corporations are really, really struggling with it. And if you're a multinational corporation, I work with a lot of very large corporations. And they're not only thinking about this, 
complicated topic from the perspective of the U.S., but all of the other countries that they're, you know, they have employees in. So, and like you said, we have been trying to make sure that women are included in an empowering, meaningful way. We don't want anything more than anybody else. We just want to be at the table and we want to be considered for what for our contributions. And so then, as you said, you start slicing it down and say, okay, well, why don't we talk about this from the perspective of women with disabilities? Now it starts complicating it more and more. And the the corporations, I just wrote an um, article for Huffington Post talking about litigation, legislation and litigation in the United States. Um, I, ha I often have, when I speak globally, um, I will have people from other countries challenge, and challenge you know, the U.S. And I know that that's just who we are, being the U.S. But it usually starts like this, you Americans. And I think, okay, here it comes. Somebody's gonna, right. somebody's gonna, you Americans aren't really gonna vote for XYZ or whatever. But so it starts with you Americans. Why is everything always about litigation? It's always about litigation. And I try to explain to them whether it's right or wrong. In the United States, we create laws and then we sue each other to pound those laws out and figure them out. I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but it's just the way we do it. So, um, but in this respect, the, in my part of the conversation, disability inclusion, employment, accessibility of websites and information communications and all of those things, it, it has really, really become um, a big problem for corporations. What's happening to corporations are lawsuits are ramping up. Every week they're they're doubling and tripling it. It's just really, really, there's a ton of litigation. But without fail, across the board, the corporations settle the cases. They do not, they just settle the cases. And that is a problem because a lot, you know, some people um, feel they're nuisance lawsuits, right? But, and also, we're not solving the problems that are the reason why they got sued. They're just quickly settling them because your brand does not want to be the brand that isn't going to include people with disabilities. Because the United, especially in the United States, Americans are very compassionate people and we're not going to have our brands doing that. So it's a, it's a very, it's very muddy right now in this space. And the major corporations are trying really hard to say, all right, we want to employ women, African Americans, LGBT, uh, people with disabilities, Hispanics. So it becomes one of those diversity points. And it's very complicated for corporations right now. Well, I, I imagine that it is. And the thing about, you know, the federal government applying these rules you know it must be you must have seven percent of your workforce um people with disabilities and you know it's in some cases it's it's troublesome for the corporation but if we looked at it from a different perspective why do we have to have those rules why do we right. have to have those numbers because it's it's not happening without them and so you know it, it's it's like um you know issues with clean air or issues with you know, diversity or issues with people with disabilities, you know, there's all, there's quotas that now have to be put in place and nobody likes quotas, but we have to have some baseline for thinking about this in a different way and raising the awareness that we just, we have to do things differently, whether it's hiring more women 
or whether it's hiring people with disabilities and, and seeing the world in a different way as opposed to just doing what we've always been doing because that's the easy way. Right. And you know it's interesting in the United States. Uh, I just wrote a book, uh, my second book. It's on um, um, tapping, uncovering hidden human capital. And so I explore from a global perspective, you know, what corporations are doing all over the world to effectively include people with disabilities in their workforce. And who's being successful? Why? Why are they being successful? Where are we seeing failures? Why? And so one of the conversations I have in the book is the quotas. Do the quotas work? And so, um, and I will say the goals that we have in the United States is 7%. We don't call it a quota. We stayed away from that word, but you do have a goal as a corporation or a university or, you know, to have 7% of your workforce. And each year you have a report that you have to complete. It's very detailed, the information that you have to provide as an employer to the government of the United States. Well, there's that Freedom Act, you know, so it's like as soon as you put in writing how many people with disabilities you uh, that applied, how many people did you interview, how many did you hire, how many have you retained, you start putting that data down in paper, on paper and um, or electronically and um, so, you know, now citizens can actually get access some of that information. So the risk to corporations just went up. What do you mean you only interviewed two people with disabilities? Don't you have 10,000 employees? Well, what do you mean you only have seven employees that have self-identified as a person with disability? Why? What does that mean? Why? You know, so the burden goes to the employer. But I will tell you another interesting finding we had in France uh, France has had quotas for employers to employ people with disabilities for many years. And it was a little, it was embarrassing to France because for many years, the employers, they just paid the fines. They were being fined left and right and they just paid the fines because they didn't know how to really meet their goals. And so the government of France realized, well, we gotta help them. And so they created some programs where there was training done, which you talked about earlier, Mary Beth. There was some training. There was support. There was guidance. And now we're seeing some great successes come out of France. 56% of the employers in France have met their quotas and are employing and very satisfied with the team members that they're getting with people with disabilities. So we can legislate it. We can put quotas. But if we don't help the employers be successful, we're going to continue to see the failures that we're seeing all over the world in these diversity issues. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, back to the company that you were, um, that you were running, the multi-million dollar uh, company. Talk a little bit about you know, how you built that up and how that sort of became this multi-million dollar company and um, you know, successes. Well, how, how did that happen? Because that's a great, um, that's a great victory, right? Yeah, it, it was interesting because I was never a person that had a burning entrepreneurial desire. I, I was always an entrepreneur. I just didn't know it. But I loved working in corporate America. And, you know, they gave me that paycheck every two weeks. No matter if I did my job or not, I always tried to do my job. But I really enjoyed it. And then when my when our daughter was going into middle school and we both woke up to the fact that there, there was there was 
no options for her as a person with Down syndrome. She could, you know, there were very, very, very few options. And so I thought, well, I know. I'm going to create a for-profit business because I've never been in the nonprofit world except for I've been on boards and stuff like that. But I knew the for-profit world. I knew how, you know, vendors and consulting and all that worked from being on the other side of the table and hiring those people. So I thought, well, shoot, how hard can it be? Okay, it's really, really hard. It's really hard. <laughs> but But I didn't know how hard it was going to be. And so... I made so many rookie mistakes. I, I made a lot of mistakes, but I also had some amazing successes. You know, growing it to, we were putting um, about two and a half million dollars in sales every year. I had uh, 40 full-time employees. I was the, I got so many accolades and awards and I was interviewed on media all over the, all over the world. I, it was, just, it was really amazing, but I always could, I couldn't get ahead of my cash flow. So I always had problems with my cash flow. I, um, I kept thinking I could sell my way out of my cash flow problems, which by the way, you can't. <laughs> the more you sell, the bigger, yeah. So there was, um, there was a lot of mistakes I made. And, and I will say this. There was information out there that if I had followed certain rules, just business 101, I wouldn't have had some of the pain that I had building it, but I also thought naively that maybe some of the rules didn't apply to me because I was doing social good. You know, business rules really have to apply to all of us, even if we have, even for a social entrepreneur and we don't even, at the time there wasn't even that, you know, that title out there. But I made a lot of mistakes typical entrepreneur, but um, I had a lot of amazing successes, and of course, it brought me to where I am right now, so it's a, I think it's such an advantage to my clients in that I, I'm not saying go out and employ people with disabilities. I've actually done that. I've been an employer of many, many people with disabilities, many different types. I've accommodated employees with disabilities. I'm a parent. I'm an entrepreneur. I've actually done it. I've put policies together for countries and, you know, UN agencies and corporations. And so I, I look back at that younger woman that I was and think, boy, you're so naive. But, you know, that also, <laughs> that's also good because if I knew how hard it was going to be, I, I might not have done it. I might have been terrified to do it. <laughs> Well, that's, that's right. And, you know, without going through some of the, I mean, you know, from the outside, things look really smooth. Wow, a multi-million dollar company, that's wonderful. But on the inside, you know, things really are, rarely are that smooth. And there's ups and yeah. downs in business. And you learn from those things. And you're right, you wouldn't be where you're at today without going, having gone through some of that. So yeah, kudos to you yeah. for, for doing that. And and, you know, we learn on the way. There's there's not a lot of tr entrepreneurial training because, you know, every business is yeah. so different. It's like it's like parenting. There's not a lot of training for that. I mean, you can take classes, you can read some books, but at the end of the day, it's it's you and, you know, what's right in front of you. <laughs> and sometimes there's no rules. It is. It, it is. And, and you're so busy. It's not as if you, at least that's what I told myself, could stop and figure out, what, what's, you know, where are you? Why are you here? I, and, and I will tell you, I, um, I got a lot of attention from investors, but 
But what I didn't realize, and I totally get now, is that I was a service-based company. It's very hard to get investors for that. And I had a lot of investors saying, well, you know, if you... If you only had a chief financial officer, I might be interested. So I would go out and hire a chief financial officer, even though you know I couldn't afford it. And they're like, oh, well, you know, uh, okay, well, if you only did this, instead of just saying to me, we don't fund service-based businesses. But uh, the, I had a woman investor um, meet with me, and I, I, you know, she thought it was a great idea. She thought I was such a good entrepreneur, blah, 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 blah. And she was, she said to me, Deborah, I'm not going to invest in you because it doesn't make sense. And she gave me very grounded reasons. And she said, but I wonder, she said, you're really good at raising money. So why have you raised money, but you still are having cash flow problems? Can you identify, can you really sit down and figure out why? And it was hard to hear at the time, but I, I did. I really took it and I thought about it and I realized when the dynamics had changed. And it, this is a, you know, um, and, and what it was, even though I hate saying this, is that when I first was starting my business, I was, uh, all of my employees, I didn't have employees. I had 1099. And so I paid people when they worked. And then this, that was around the time when Microsoft was getting in trouble because they were they had so many 1099s and the government said no they're really employees and so my 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 attorney said well Deborah you need to look at this ruling because I think you might be getting there too and so I did a knee jerk reaction my my attorney didn't tell me to do this and I hired all of my 1099s as employees. That was a really bad mistake because what happened was I could never catch up. I, you know, I had people sitting on the bench and they weren't productive. And so, you know, that all or nothing, certainly I had to learn that the hard way. That's one thing you don't do. <laughs> Baby steps would be good. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. So yeah. T tell listeners a little bit about your daughter, Sarah. Well, my daughter Sarah, she is she's amazing, and she she is a like like we said, she's a young lady with Down syndrome. She's 28 years old now, and she works for Nordstrom and has worked for Nordstroms for 10 years, and she also works for my company. And when she was that four month old baby, and they were telling us she had Down syndrome and our life was over as we knew it, um, they told us she might not walk, she might not talk, but she now goes with me all over the world speaking to audiences of thousands of people at a time. Wow. And so, yeah, she's, and she's very spiritually aware. She, uh, I have a spiritual practice and I try to stay centered and focused and be a servant leader and, you know, all those things, stay in the moment. But she doesn't have to have a practice. She just is that. She is always in the moment. She sees the best in people. She's very optimistic about the world. So she's a really great teacher to me. And um, she she's just been she she has been a real gift in our lives. And but people are always underestimating her, you know. And um, and you know when I'm dealing with the the employment. I am not saying to um, a, an engineering firm, you really need to hire my daughter because <laughs> employers should hire people that are qualified to do their jobs, yeah. period. Yeah. But some of those people are women 
Some are African American. Some are people with disabilities. So it's an understanding all the different pieces that go with that. You know, sometimes I'm um, I've been interviewed about accommodating an individual with a disability. So you employ a person that's blind. So you want to accommodate that person and make sure you know they can get access to your communications, your internet communications and technology. So you might purchase them a screen reader, which is a software application that a person that's blind um, can use to access information on your intranet or your internet. But at the same time, we don't just accommodate employees with disabilities. You also accommodate that uh, mother that wants to, you know, coach their son's soccer games on Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock. You accommodate, you know, the person, the the man whose wife's going to have a baby, and you know what's going to happen in that household. People aren't going to be sleeping for a few months, you know. So we accommodate our employees. We accommodate our employees that need stand-up desks because their backs are hurting or they're finding that they don't have the right circulation in their legs. So we accommodate employees every day because we want those employees to be productive. Nothing wrong with that. Well, it's the same thing with people with disabilities. We accommodate people, employees, people, so that they can be productive. And taking some of the, um, you know, helping them understand the nuances, I'm often telling large corporations, you've already employed people with disabilities. You just don't realize it. And so one question you have to ask yourself is, why are your employees with disabilities not disclosing it? Are they not disclosing it because there's a fear that they won't be taken seriously, they won't be promoted, maybe even they could, you know, lose, you know, you know, their positions or so there's a lot of work to do with the particular topic that I'm invested in. But it blends into all of the work that we're doing, that you're doing as well, Merida. Well, and I love this idea of accommodating because anyone can work at any company, um, assuming there's the, some role that, that would work for them with inside of that company. But it's the accommodating thing, and I have not thought of it that way. Um, we talk about that as it relates to people with disabilities, but it's accommodating people so that they can work at their best inside of your company and feel like they are a part of the company, that they don't have to right. not disclose things or what, we're accommodating people because they're people. And that's the kind of organizations that we have. And um, there's the old school ways, you know, you come, you work here, you, you abide by our rules and, and here's what they are. But I think today in this world, there's a much more um, kinder way to, to run business. And I, I believe that business would be just as profitable, if not more, and probably way more. Well, that's what studies have found. We have found that when you accommodate employees, once again, not just about people with disabilities, but when you accommodate them because you know your employees are living their lives while they're working for you. They're getting married, they're divorcing, they're having kids, they're you know adopting, they're getting sick, their mother's getting sick, their father, they're, I mean, people live their lives. I mean, right now today in Virginia, we have two inches of snow. Well, we just aren't prepared for that, Virginia. So, you know, we're working from home, hopefully, and we're, you know, our kids aren't going to school today. So that cause that is an accommodation. And I think often we accidentally, and I use a very big we there, but these topics get complicated because um, I think there's a fear 
also, um, and it's not just with this segment, people with disability. It's, it falls into other diversity segments too, but there's the fear that if you hire this person with disabilities or this person with, you know, whatever the diversity is, that you can't let them go. You can never let them go even if they're a bad worker or they don't come to work or anything else because you're stuck with them forever. And it's not true. You just have to do the same job that you have to do with any employee. If an employee is not um, doing their job, there are very specific steps that an, a manager and an HR um, specialist have to take. You know, you want to help them, what's going on with them, how can you, you know, do they need an accommodation, blah, 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 all the steps that you have to take. None of that is different employing people with disabilities or any other diversity group. But it's, I think we, there's emotions attached to some of these topics that really muddy the waters. And I'll give you another example. There was a senior executive at Cisco and he got in a really bad car accident and he lost the use of his left arm. Um, and, and they felt, the doctors felt he would get it back, but for almost nine months, this executive could not could not type with two hands, could only type with one hand. And so um, somebody on the team gave me a call and said, you know, what can we do to help him? And I said, give him a copy of um, Naturally, Dragon Naturally Speaking. Right. Which a lot of attorneys and um, a lot of doctors use, a lot of people use it now, including people with disabilities. And so they did, and he got so good on it that once he got better um, and could type with both hands, he didn't. He never went back because <laughs> he got so much more productive using this this software application to speak to his computer, which you know is happening for all of us now. So um, it, it's really amazing what technology is allowing us to do, but. We have to, you know, I know we'll, we'll probably always have labels, but I think we've got to shake the labels off and look at the human potential. What is the human potential? Instead of deciding that a group of people are not worthy or are broken or whatever label we're going to put on them, um, you know, what can we do to really accommodate these employees, and I'll, I'll give you another example. There is um, Canon. Canon um, has been, uh, I've worked with Canon for a long time. It's a really good company, and they did a program in, outside of Chicago, and they um, really care about the environment, have always cared about the environment, and so they had their personal cameras that a lot of us buy, and something was wrong with it and people would send it back and this was years ago but they would send it back to the plant and they they wanted to create a program that the camera could be dismantled and you could figure out what pieces actually needed to go to the landfill but can you do it you can some of it be recycled which pieces which pieces could be fixed and what which pieces were fine and so they decided to bring in a group of uh, people with intellectual disabilities to do this job. So they did the job and they made about, I don't know the exact, number, exact numbers, but they made like 16 to 19 million dollars profit in the first year from doing this. And it also really spoke to their corporate goals. So that was great. But then something happened that surprised them. And every year they do surveys, they look at, um, you know, they do their measurements and everything, and they look at the plants all over the world that are, you know, working on Canon products. 
and they noticed that this plant in outside of Chicago that the productivity had gone up overall by about 36% overall in that one plant and so that really intrigued the Canon people so they they tried to figure out why they went up so much over all of their peers all over the world. The only thing that was different was that they had brought in this group of people with intellectual disabilities. They were eating lunch with everybody else. They were going to the meetings. They were walking in the halls. And they started surveying the employees in this Illinois um, plant. And they said, you know, I'm very proud to work for Canon because yeah. I really like to be able to go and have lunch with Joe who has Down syndrome. It makes me very proud. And guess what? When we're proud, we're more productive. And Absolutely. we want to be employers of choice, right? So, oh, that's It's just wonderful. I mean, it makes you think about the, the change that can happen that you didn't even expect. Like you said, this was surprising. But right. this has been a very fascinating conversation. I have enjoyed talking with you so much, Deborah, And I know that our audience has enjoyed it as well. How can people reach you, find out more about your books, that kind of stuff? Well, my website is www.com ruglobal.com and that's R-U-H global but um, as you know Mary Beth because this is where we met I'm very very active on social media so I'm on Twitter at Deborah Ru D-E-B-R-A-R-U-H and I'm on Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest and uh, LinkedIn I'm very very active probably too active on social media but I love the power of social media for social good I love it I love it I love that I could you know start the, because how I found you Mary Beth was I saw you tweeting about one of your shows you did on women in the boardroom which is something I'm very very interested in women's rights and how do we support each other how do the baby boomer women like myself support the millennial women uh, very very interested in the topic and so that's how I found out found out about your work and so I'm very active on social media so always a good way to connect with me well, wonderful well, hopefully our listeners can find you and thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate it yeah thank you for what you're doing for women Mary Beth I really really appreciate that well, it is my pleasure, and I'm very passionate about this topic. And from the Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kosmeski. Thanks for listening to the Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.